0: Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. We're good to be together again and glad the Lord has given us this opportunity. And I pray that he blesses you and I pray that he encourages you. And even through this video, just feed your soul and get you ready to teach if you're a teacher or encourages you if you are a member that is keeping up with your class. We appreciate that very much because we know you don't have to do any of this. And uh, we just appreciate the fact that you're willing to give your time to uh, be a teacher and to help people like that or to uh, keep up with your class, as we said. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Today, uh, this is the lesson we're going to present on August 6th, 2023. And uh, time marches on, doesn't it? And we've entitled it, God Keeps His Covenant. God Keeps His Covenant. Now, as Paul lays out his case for the Galatians to tell them why they should not be believing or following the Judaizers. In fact, he goes so far uh, as to call them false brethren, and you certainly wouldn't want to follow them. And he uh, is making his case because he's not just wanting them to simply believe him because he's Paul and because they know him and because they've been around him and They think he's cool and all of that. Uh, He wants them to know not only what they believe, but why they believe it. I think that is a powerful thing. Um, I know some people who kind of have the idea that if we can just, well, well, the field is called apologetics, not that we apologize for our Christianity. The word, it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means give a defense of it. And so back in Bible days, an apology did not mean, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. Will you please forgive me? That, that had nothing to do with it. An apologia, an apology was actually you stating why you did it, why you did what you did. Kind of like being in a courtroom maybe and uh, somebody says, why did you do this? And you give a defense or your attorney gives a defense. That would be called an apologia. And so when we talk about apologetics, some people kind of have the idea that if we can just learn these things and really defend our faith, we can prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. We can prove that the miracles in the Bible happen. We can prove all of these different things that the world will just go, oh, you're so right, and they'll just fall down and confess Jesus as Lord and get saved. And the truth of the matter is that that won't really happen because Romans 3 says that they are uh, beyond understanding. They, they just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. And of course, we know, uh, according to the Bible, that um, spiritual things require a spiritual mind and the world doesn't get them because these things are spiritually discerned. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit and the new birth, regeneration, uh, new nature, all of that. And uh, also, we think about them being hard-hearted, and we think about their conscience being seared. That's the way Paul describes it. But uh, let's not forget the main thing, which would be in Ephesians chapter 2 and other places. They're dead. They're dead spiritually. So um, if, if you don't really get what that means, and you know, next time you have a chance, go to a funeral home and try to have an argument and try to convince a corpse that they're not really dead and that they ought to do better than lie there in that box. Um, I don't mean to be morbid or anything like that, but um, you know as well as I do, nothing's going to happen. And so uh, why then do we study these reasons for why we believe? And why does Paul give the Galatians these reasons that they ought to believe him? Well, part of it is because a lot of times apologetics, knowing why we believe what we believe, it may not convince the world, but it sure helps us, doesn't it? It gives us a stronger faith, a platform on which to stand. And Paul doesn't want them to be just going back and forth depending on who's there. Judaizers are here, okay, we're all for keeping the Mosaic law with our Christianity. Paul's there, oh no, we're free in Christ and The debt has already been paid and going back and forth. um, He doesn't want that for them. He wants better for them. And so in this particular section we're looking at today, chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Then um, we're going to be thinking about this. I'll just read the introduction here. The Judaizers were pushing the law of Moses to the point of saying that it was necessary for salvation. And they were saying that the law superseded the covenant made first with Abraham and affirmed to uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, his grandson. And so uh, when we look at Galatians three fifteen through 18, uh, listen to how Paul lays this out. Okay, now you have to pay attention and uh, look carefully at the words and the wording and grasp the concepts here. Verse 15 says, Brethren, that's an important word, isn't it? Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. It's set, in other words. Verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed, that would be his offspring, were the promises made? He does not say, and to seeds as of many, you know, the plural there, but as of one. And uh, to your seed, he says, who is Christ. That's interesting, isn't it? Christ certainly was the offspring. But notice how when he talks about this, it's not just all of Abraham's descendants in general, the promise is given basically to one. It focuses on Christ, who he is and what he does. And of course, he was of the seed of Abraham. Verse 17, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise, which means we accept it on his word and by faith. God said, this is what is going to happen. And we just simply trust in the word of God, not in our uh, law keeping or our surgeries or our rituals or anything like that. Okay. So uh, let's cover it like this. Number one, we've got to get to the biggest issue. Who's saved? Who is saved in this situation? Now, if the Judaizers are truly saved and that's the true gospel, then we would have to follow them regardless of what we thought about it, regardless of whether we liked it or not, regardless of whether we wanted to do it or not. If they are true believers and then they are presenting the true gospel and you got to do it like it or not. You've got to fulfill that. However, if Paul is right, then the Galatians are already saved. They don't need to complete it by the ritual of circumcision. It's already done. They were justified. Remember in previous lessons, we talked about the difference between justification. If it's a process, then you never really know for sure if you've got it, if you're truly saved. But if it happens in an instant, the moment you put your faith in Christ, you are justified. You are saved forever and freed from the penalty of sin. Well, if the uh, Galatians, almost said Judaizers, if the Galatians have trusted Christ according to the gospel that Paul preached to them, if Paul is right, then they're already saved. So what does Paul call them And he uses that word that I said was very important. And we just look at one word for this first point, and that is the word brethren. He's not telling them, hey, Galatians, you're almost there. Hey, Galatians, you're close, really, really close. But as we know, close doesn't matter except in uh, uh, horseshoes, hand grenades, and atom bombs. That's what we always used to say. And so you either have it or you don't. You're either lost or you're saved. You're not semi-saved, almost saved, partially saved or anything. It's you're saved or not. It's kind of like the idea of when you think about the death metaphor in this. You're either dead or you're alive. You're not in between. Uh, that's just the way it is. I know sometimes we say people are half dead, but we just mean they're halfway on their path to death, not that they are, you know, sort of alive and sort of dead. That's... Not really technically possible. And so when he calls them brethren, that settles one issue. Paul the apostle considers these people to be saved. Are they mixed up? Yeah, they're mixed up. You can be mixed up and be a true believer, right? And so the Galatians are confused, but we do know here because of what Paul says that they are saved. Now, this is why we can't just take new believers and leave them to twist in the wind. Uh, sometimes I'm afraid Baptists have the reputation that we do everything we can to witness to somebody, to get them in church, to give them the gospel. And then once they pray the prayer, walk the aisle, and then are baptized, then we're ready to move on to uh, get somebody else as another notch in our in our gun barrel or whatever. And um, we dip them and drop them, somebody said. Well, that's not the way we ought to be doing it. That's why we are to focus on teaching the Bible, teaching the Word of God, uh, to believers. That's why a church service, it's my conviction, as at a church service, a Sunday morning service, while we ought to present the gospel, it's not just about that. It's about feeding the sheep. It's about building up believers. Now, my conviction is, if you get believers to be mature, then uh, salvation is not going to be an issue because mature believers reproduce. They share their faith. They lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. And so the goal is to get our church to be a mature church filled with mature believers. And by the way, Christian maturity is not a matter of calendars or chronology. You can be 90 years old, say, for 70 years and still be an immature believer, okay? Uh, it's, you got to learn, you got to grow, you've got to apply, you've got to feed on the Word of God and really develop. And then there are other people we know that haven't been saved very long, but man, they grow, as we say, like a weed. And so we want to have a church full of mature believers and uh, ma- mature believers sharing the gospel and reproducing their own lives so the judaizers here were coming in and they were confusing the galatians well who's right well paul uh, makes it real clear because he calls the galatians the confused baby christian galatians he calls them brethren a title of uh, respect and uh, family and inclusiveness in there but uh, the Judaizers, on the other hand, boy, they were confident, they knew their stuff, and they could tell you the history of circumcision, they could tell you the law of Moses, the rituals that were going through, and they could tell you why they did that and why you should do that as well. very persuasive, evidently, very, very confident. you ever known anybody like that they were They may be wrong, but they're never in doubt, but they're really, really, really confident in what they say and kind of intimidating. Don't you get that picture in Galatia with these uh, poor believers that these Judaizers come and they are so confident and so uh, informed and so persuasive and so articulate in what they say that uh, it's got the Galatians confused. And so these people are very dogmatic, but they are wrong and they are lost. In fact, in Galatians 2, 4, remember, it says, and this occurred because of false brethren, Paul calls them, secretly brought in. They came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, the bondage of the law, law law-keeping, that type of thing, in order to get right with God. Now, Please note that Paul called the confused Galatians brethren and the Judaizers false brethren. Why do I reiterate that? Because I think most people, if they've been looking at the situation, they would go, man, these Galatians don't know anything. They're so ignorant. They're like a baby crawling on the floor. And, uh, you know, just, they don't know what to think. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to eat. They don't know what to spit out. They don't know what is good. They don't know what is bad or poison, you know, that type of thing. They don't really know anything. But, oh man, those people from Jerusalem, man, you got to admire them. They know their stuff. I've heard people say that about Jehovah's Witnesses. I've heard them say that about Mormons and Other groups like that, well, one thing about it, boy, they really know their stuff. I wish we knew our stuff as Baptists as well as some of these cults do. Okay, that's an indictment against us. But it doesn't mean that we're not saved because like the Galatians, you can be confused, you can be mixed up, and you can be ignorant about some things. But if you've truly trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, then that is an irrevocable or uh, in England they say they say irrevocable uh that's an irrevocable contract that's an irrevocable covenant okay it cannot be revoked irrevocable okay so they are saved and they are saved for time and eternity even though they're kind of mm, stupid about things ignorant about things i don't mean to be unkind to them But uh, that's the way it is. And there are a lot of people now that are maybe truly saved, but they don't really know what they believe. They don't really know what's good or bad or right or wrong. They just kind of think anything with Jesus and a little Bible in it, with people smiling, oh, it must be good, can't be all bad. And so they fall for it. And that's why we've got to teach sound doctrine. And so the difference between the Judaizers and the Galatians, and even the way they acted. And by the way, I have it written down here, this is what I call millstone territory. You remember Luke 17, 1 and 2. And he said to his disciples, Um, temptation to sin are temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were cast into the sea, then that uh, he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Uh, I think we need to think long and hard about that. I, I think we need to understand God does not abandon his children. He keeps his word to them, even if they're immature, confused, ignorant, whatever it may be. He keeps his word. And, you know, we've heard stories about uh, women having babies and then maybe throwing the baby in a trash can or in a dumpster or something like that. And we go, oh, how could anyone do that? But, you know, I think sometimes as Christians and maybe even as churches, We do the same thing when we don't care for young believers, when we're not praying for them, when we're not befriending them and bonding with them, nurturing them, being patient with them, teaching them and making disciples of them. It's almost like we are taking a baby that God gives us and then we just toss it away and kind of forget about it. I think the thing about the millstone applies to the Judaizers, what they were doing to these little ones in Christ, I think it also applies to us. If we're not careful to love them and take care of them, we may be in that same territory, just food for thought. Now, secondly, a covenant or a promise or a treaty is binding, Paul says, even on earth. Now, I know in the day we live, people always look for loopholes and they always You know, that fine print that's always in a contract you sign, maybe on your house mortgage or a car that you bought or something like that. Even on the commercials, I get a little tickled. They'll have a thing about a a finance company or a a car loan or something like that, and they'll tell you all about it. You can get it for 84 months at, you know, 6% or whatever it is now. And then at the end, they had that part where the guy talks really fast. Blah, 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 blah. You can't even hardly understand it. They have it digitally speeded up. And uh, that's, that's where they are covering themselves so that, uh, you know, they, they don't get caught And uh, they've disclosed, supposedly, even though you can't understand them, everything there. And that's because they had to do that because people actually tried to cheat the system. They look for the things in the contract that they signed, not only that it says, but they also play the game of, yeah, but it didn't say this, and it didn't say this. And so now all that fine print has to be in there so that everything, all the bases Now, in Paul's day, Paul could probably find people who would cheat and people who would lie and people who would look for loopholes. But his point is that even in a human society, we all know how it's supposed to be. We know how it's supposed to be. Back in the old days, when people would trade a whole farm, their whole livelihood on a handshake, Back in the days when, if a man told you, I will get you the money by Thursday, he got you the money by Thursday and didn't try to run off with it or cheat or steal. I mean, again, I know there were always exceptions, but the main thing is they're not supposed to do that. It's not supposed to be that way. And so he says, I speak in the manner of men. Let's take an everyday human example, Paul says. Let's go into uh, what we might call real life. And he said, though it is only a man's covenant, an agreement between two people, yet if it is confirmed, that's the handshake, that's the signature, this is what we agree to, this much money over this much time for this much interest, and then we're done. Then Paul says, once it's concerned, uh, confirmed, sorry, uh, no one annuls it, or adds to it. So if your signature is on that and you've shaken hands and made a deal, then you're not supposed to be able to get out of that. That's why you shook hands and that's why you signed it. Is this your signature? Yes, it is. Then you are bound by the terms of the covenant. No, that's I didn't sign that. That's not what I agreed to. You're going to be held liable for it. And then if it was that you were supposed to pay $450 a month for seven years... Uh, then you would own the car. Well, you can't pay them $50 a month for two years and say, nope, I've fulfilled all the terms of the contract. Nobody can add to it. Nobody can change it. And wouldn't it be terrible? Sometimes this may happen, but it, again, is illegal. If you agree to X number of dollars for X amount of time, and then all of a sudden the finance company charges you double that, and uh, they want it in half the time, you would take them to court, and you would protest that because you can't add to it, and you can't take away from it. You can't change it, in other words. Now, do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying if the terms of salvation, going all the way back to Abraham, as we're going to see, if that's the terms and the conditions for salvation, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, And then the law comes along, and Paul says here, 430 years afterward, does that change the original covenant that salvation comes by believing God? Believing God. No. Paul's point is you can't change the covenant. God does not change his mind. God does not try to cheat. God does not say, oh, I didn't mean that, and then pull the rug out from under us or deceive us. Or anything like that. Now, this ought to give every believer tremendous hope. God doesn't just play games and say, oops, sorry, change the terms. Oops, sorry, that's not the way I really meant it. That's not what I meant to say. And Paul uses a human illustration to illustrate that point. And so we know how it ought to be. Again, it's not always that way, but that's the way it's supposed to be. We keep our word, we want to be seen as faithful. And uh, we want to be admired in all of this. Well, that's the way God is. He keeps his word. And so it's supposed to be an unchangeable thing. Okay, now if mortals expect this, and mortals say that's the way it ought to be, how much more should it be to a faithful God? Okay, now let's move on using his logic. Number three, words matter especially in Scripture. God is not simply trying to trick us. He's not trying to use words that we don't understand and that we can't get. He makes everything as clear as possible. And when you're saved and you're made alive in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit as your resident truth teacher, along with people in the church who are gifted to teach, we come to a better understanding of the Word of God and of the law. Now, Paul gets into this thing in verse 16, seed or seeds, seeds or seed. Does it really matter? Do we have to be that picky? Uh, This is a strong statement for the inspiration of scripture. Paul even points out in all of this to back up things. It's not that God said seeds, but he said seed. What is he talking about? And it's not like God saying, oh, did I say that? Did I use a plural? Ah, silly me. No, he meant to say seed because, as Paul said, the seed, the singular, is pointing to Christ because salvation is going to come by grace through faith, and Christ is going to be of the seed of Abraham. And read your genealogies that you like to skip over in the Gospels because they clarify this and point to the fact that Jesus really is of the seed of Abraham. So God did not say that in Abraham's seeds, every person that's the offspring of Abraham is going to be a blessing to the world, but he said that um, it's through the seed, through Christ, that is going to happen. Paul clarifies all of that for us. Now, if it were through the law, if it were through the Jewish religion, if it were through anything like that, they were descendants of Abraham, by the way. That would be using the plural seeds. But as Paul points out, God used the singular seed. That's pointing to Christ. And again, what he is saying now is salvation is either through Christ or it's through the religion, either through Christ or through the law. It's either through Christ or it's through every person that happens to have Abraham's DNA and all of this, which what he is saying is, the promise of salvation that he gives in that Abrahamic covenant is not automatic. It's not universal and it's not given to all of Abraham's descendants. Some Jews are going to hell. Some Jews are going to heaven, but it depends upon their faith in God and their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the sacrificial system, that law that the Judaizers held up so well, they were, um, not getting the point that the sacrificial system pointed to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What was he referring to? Those sacrifices that Jews offered time and time and time and time again. And the idea is that the sacrifice doesn't save you, but what they point to does save you. And everything in the Abrahamic covenant points to Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. Even the word, the difference between seeds and seed points to the exclusivity of the death of Christ in the Bible. Now, this is thousands of years ago. This is a long time before even Christ was born, and yet it all pointed to him. God had all of this set up and ready uh, at the proper time here. So to uh, enter into the covenant, you have to have it like this. I have put my faith in God and God has said, I will receive anyone who comes to me believing in the sacrifice of Christ as a payment for his sins. Now, if you believe baptism pays for your sins, then you have annulled the covenant. You're adding to the covenant there. If you believe then that... um, somehow a ritual like the Judaizer said has to be there, then you are annulling the terms of the covenant. You're adding to it. You're changing it. You're taking away from the main point and what really it is supposed to be. And so Paul is coming back and saying, no, God did not change the covenant. And even though the law came, and uh, he says 430 years. Now, actually, if we go back to Abraham, it was over 600 years. And so what he's making reference to with the 430 is God gave the covenant to Abraham. He reaffirmed it to Isaac, uh, Abraham's son. And then he reaffirmed it to Jacob, which was Isaac's son. And you remember Jacob is going to, after he finds out that Joseph had been taken and made a, a slave in Egypt, And uh, then uh, Jacob, I mean, pardon me, Joseph comes out and is made the prime minister of Egypt. And there's food in Egypt when there's a famine in Israel. And remember the brothers go there and they come back and they find out that their brother that they sold into slavery is, you know, the second in command over Egypt. They come back and they tell Jacob and Jacob wants to go to see Joseph and he wants to live in Egypt. And as he is leaving, God reaffirms the covenant to Abraham. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from Jacob to the law-giving of Moses in the desert was 430 years. So that's the way that works. It was the reiteration, the reaffirmation reaffirm- of the covenant of Abraham to uh, none other than Jacob. So this all points to the fact that God from the very beginning has said, if you will believe me, I will provide the lamb. I will provide the sacrifice for you. It's kind of like when Abraham and Isaac are going up to Mount Moriah and uh, Abraham thinks he's going to have to offer his only son. And Isaac notices, we've got everything we need, but the sacrifice. And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. And he did. There was that ram that was in the thicket that was up there that was a substitute for Isaac dying. And in that same way, the Lamb of God has come and he is the substitute who died in our place and did that for the glory of God and through that paid for our sins. And it's an unchangeable covenant, okay? And so uh, all of this is really important. Pay attention to the wording here, that the covenant was made in Christ, and so uh, you must come to Christ for your salvation. Okay? It's always been that way, and it always will be that way, and it's just that exact. Number four, the covenant was made over 400 years before the law was given. So which is the most important, and which uh, supersedes the other? Is it the law that nullifies the promise that was made to Abraham? Or is it the promise that God made to Abraham that supersedes the law? Now, both of them are good, and both of them have their purpose, but only one can save. And Paul has already told us that by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And it's not because God said, I'm not going to accept the law, it's because none of us have the capability to keep the law. So we can't uh, agree to its terms because we're lawbreakers, all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is what it says. And that's reiterated in both the Old and the New Testament. And that's why blood had to be shed. It wasn't just enough to take the Ten Commandments, but we also, because we broke those, we would have to take an innocent animal and offer them on the altar as an admission that we are sinners God is holy and we must come to him by grace through faith. And that pointed ahead to the coming of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we all saved and, pardon me, we all Old Testament and New Testament are looking to Christ. Old Testament people from Abraham on really looked forward to it. And we, as New Testament believers, we look back to it, but all look to Christ if they're going to be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so um, Abraham goes on to say, and I mean, pardon me, Paul goes on to say, I'm really stumbling here. Sorry about that. And this I say that the law, which was, Four hundred and thirty years later, remember, as it was reiterated to Jacob, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ. Remember, we've already pointed out once it's made, it can't be changed or altered. So the law didn't change the covenant. The law simply pointed out the fact that we always fall short of the covenant. In fact, the word covenant in the Hebrew is berit, and it means to cut. Literally, the Hebrew says we don't make a covenant, we cut a covenant. And Abraham, when he and God made the covenant, animals were cut up and they were spread apart. And then what you would do in this, uh, I believe it's called a suzerain covenant, you would walk through the dead animals, the slaughtered animals, both parties, and you would say, may this happen to me if I don't meet the terms of the covenant. You know what's interesting about the covenant that God made with Abraham? Is that Abraham never walked between the animals, but God did. And God is saying to him, this is a one-sided covenant I'm making with you, and this is based upon me and my faithfulness, because I know you could never live up to the terms of the covenant. And so when the law comes along, the law, all it does is number one, it points to Christ. Think about that. Everything in the law pointed to Christ. And number two, it revealed our sinfulness, even in the smallest and the most minute areas of life. And so uh, we take that and we realize I've got to have another kind of righteousness. I've got to have something else that goes beyond me. And so God sent his son who kept the law completely and then dies on the cross and he is the unblemished lamb, the picture there, right? And he dies for our sins, takes the wrath of God in and on himself and then gives us his perfect righteousness. Again, as we've talked about before, the exchange. But this is Paul's argument. Covenants cannot be changed or rescinded like that. They have to be fulfilled. Why do we have the Old Testament in the Bible, the Old Covenant, and then the new one? Jesus said, I'm giving you a new covenant in my blood at the Last Supper. Does that mean God was just saying, ah, forget it, we tried it and that didn't work? No, that Old Testament was completely fulfilled in Christ so that then, once it's fulfilled, it's fulfilled. Done. Close the books on that. And then we can make a new covenant now. Uh, Just like when you pay off your car, you're free to sell that car and then make a new covenant with somebody else whenever you want a new car. Whenever you pay off your house, it's your house. You can do whatever you want to with it and you can make a new deal with somebody else if you want to. And that's what God did because God keeps His word and through Christ. He fulfilled the covenant. And because Christ faithfully did all of that, we are secure in him in everything we do. There's nothing else we have to do. Nothing's changed. Nothing's been added to it. Nothing has been taken away from it. You are complete and you are secure in Christ. And so we see even the way the law coming later it wasn't so that it could supersede and say, never mind, here's a new way to do it. It had its own purpose. And that, again, was to point to Christ and show our need for, and here's a term for you, alien righteousness. That doesn't mean righteousness from Mars. It just means a righteousness outside of ourselves. We cannot produce it and we can't uh, do it. And so that's where we kind of want to end up and uh, see that security of the believer, yes. Not because we held on to Christ, but because he holds on to us. Not because we've been faithful to him, because he is faithful to us and he has promised to save us, to redeem us, and to take us to heaven to live forever with him. And so all of that is such an important thing to grasp because we rest in him and we rest on him for our salvation for eternity. We'll understand it better in heaven, but there's how Paul lays it out. The logic of the idea of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the gospel alone. And that's what saved the Galatians. And they're in heaven today, by the way, and you'll get to meet them and see them one of these days. The Judaizers, unless they repented, they will not be. So here we are. We can be confused, immature, and ignorant, and yet still save. Why? Because of the faithfulness of God. So amen to that. Rest in that, okay? May the Lord bless you, and thank you so much for your time, and I pray that it'll be fruitful in your own life and in the life of your Sunday school class. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.